Oh yes, I'm Hunter, uh, your second co-host. What are we going to do on this episode of the podcast, you? What are our what are our segments on this timely episode of the podcast in which we capitalize on the zeitgeist? We did. We did what was Robot released? We will be discussing the buzzy film of the moment, 2019's Roma. <laughs> um, I guess it's still an Oscar contender, so. It's still yeah, I'm sure it'll do. I mean, Alfonso Cuarón just won the best director uh, at the Golden Globes. So, what else are we gonna do today besides talk about uh, film of the moment Roma, which is uh, re- was released uh, on the 21st of November 2018. Um, let me see. This podcast will be released in like three weeks, so <laughs> yeah. we're only we're only a couple months a couple months off. <laughs> so, uh, is there anything else we're gonna do on the podcast today besides Roma, or is that it? Long. We're just going to talk about Roma for three hours. And then we're going to check in, I guess, about our uh, ongoing experiment slash project with the IMDb Top 250 Films. That is correct. Though we will start with just the first 50 films, because that would take forever if we did 250 films. It's, it's going to take forever. We wish we will. Yeah, but... Uh, <laughs> it'll take even longer but it'll give us time to do things in between it'll be like check back in with us in a couple of more years and <laughs> check back in with us in 15 years <laughs> <laughs> it's like twin peaks okay so uh shall we start discussing netflix's roma roma roma, roma. i got foma his fear of missing art. Should we give it a summary? Neither of us wrote summaries, I don't think. Unless he did. No. He didn't tell me. I certainly did not write one. Um, but I guess we should start by saying... I don't, I don't want to speak for you, but we talked about this a bit before, but neither one of us are the biggest fans of its director, is that, would you describe that as true? Of its director, Alfonso Cuaron. Yes. That is correct. So what, what, what has been your prior exposure to Mr. Cuaron? Uh, I think of his films, I've only seen uh, Children of Men and, previous to of course, and um, Harry Potter and The Prisoner of Azkaban. How about yourself? Uh, I've only seen Children of Men and Gravity. I missed Gravity. Wow, you must be floating in space. Whoa. So how did you find uh, The Prisoner of Azkaban, the dark, edgy one that uh, everyone... Uh, they're all the dark, edgy ...appreciates ones. ...appreciates more than the others? Um, it's, like, fine. And I, I think it's overrated, but it's, it's, like, fine. I don't know. Uh, it's certainly, I like the novel it's based on, so that sort of props it up a bit. Um, but in terms of, like, pure cinematic technique, it, didn't really, it doesn't really seem that much more distinguished than any of the other uh, Harry Potter films, to be honest. So. And uh, Children of Men? Uh, we talked about that previously, I believe, but uh, I was uh, fairly meh on it. Mm. Uh, I just thought it was, I don't know, it just kind of... Uh, didn't really hold together for me, I would say. Yeah, like my memory of it is, I that would have 
that would have taken a lot of work to stage that sequence and that was impressively staged Ooh, but maybe maybe we'll talk about that exact feeling in a little bit beyond that <laughs> I, the film kind of receded uh anyway yeah so that i i guess that was my uh apprehension with uh Quaron coming into roma mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And kind of exacerbated by the subject matter of this film, which made me even more suspicious. But anyway, should we get into what that subject? Matter uh, is? Yeah, let's 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 volley back and forth. Let's, and let's see let's if describe we can explain the film. The, the premise of this film. Okay. Uh, so it is so. it is inspired by uh, Alfonso Cuarón's own childhood. Mm-hmm. As a upper middle class. Yeah, as an upper middle class uh, uh, resident of Mexico City, and uh, it's more particularly uh, inspired by The Help. (laughs) (laughs) That great film that we will be forced to watch. The Rich uh, Lives of the... At some point. Um, Anyway, so it was inspired by his own uh, hired maid, housekeeper. Yes. Who uh, helped raise him. Or even primarily raised him. Um, I would say the evidence uh, in the film points to the, the latter. Mm. Um, so yes, uh, so it, it sort of takes um, the narrative just follows this family for uh, a couple of months, maybe like nine or so, let's say. And for, uh, primarily from the perspective of uh, a maid named Cleo. Yeah. Played yeah. by a non-professional actor. Uh, well, at least first time actor. Yeah, which I guess is the same thing. It's not her profession. It might, but it, it might become gonna, her profession. But I think it might be. Oh, she's a teacher too. That's interesting. yeah. She was uh, Yulitsa huh. Aparicio. <laughs> uh, that was great. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. You're you're fluent in um, Spanish, correctly, correct? I am. So we've introduced it, um, Hugh. Well, I think I think up. we could explain the plot oh. a bit better than we did. Okay. <laughs> that was fun. Sorry, it's, it centers on this this uh, as you said, upper middle class family in uh, Mexico. Yeah, specifically uh, Roma. I think is is the place where it takes place. Uh, I believe the actual neighborhood is called Colonia Roma, um, and it's a. Family with a couple of sprogs and a disintegrating relationship between the parents. The father, who's a uh, lawyer or a scientist or something. He's a doctor. He's a doctor. Um, yeah. Leaves uh, well, someone was ostensibly <laughs> on a work trip, but ends up just abandoning the family for yeah, a mistress. Knows his mistress. And uh, meanwhile, um, Cleo a maid, um, powers away at her day-to-day routine and uh, keeps the family together. Yeah. Because she's so virtuous and holy. And then her baby dies. <laughs> but it's okay, because she didn't really want it anyway. Yeah. Um, so is that, is that satisfactory to you? <laughs> yeah, that's good. Okay. Oh, I guess you should also mention... This is a film that has received pretty much nothing but uh, acclaim. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been near the top of many critics' top ten lists. It has a uh, near-perfect Rotten Tomatoes score, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
But it's always worth qualifying Rotten Tomatoes scores. It just means that every review was yeah. on the side of positive as opposed to negative, which means it could be like three stars. But additionally, additionally, uh, it's a Metacritic score, which is more of a, a weighted average is also incredibly high. Yeah. So it's not that people are simply like liking it. It's more that a lot of people are acclaiming it heavily. Yes. Um, so I will say that my, my reservations about this film, mm-hmm. going into it, my suspicion about it, uh, those issues were not fully assuaged. Assuaged? What were those uh, assuaged? What were those uh, reservations besides just uh, a not entirely positive um, relationship with its creator? So as as we as we talked about with the previous films, um, his sort of focus on technical accomplishment, um, sort of dwarfing the rest of the film. In the case of Gravity, I think it's fine. I actually think the film would have been better if it was just a technical accomplishment and um, it didn't try to uh, add like tedious shading to the characters and uh, some other elements in the film which actually detract from its technical accomplishments. But in a way, like, the just doing a technical accomplishment, like, works thematically for Gravity as well. It does. It's all about a woman trying to perform a great technical yeah. accomplishment, so... <laughs> Unlike Children of Men, or this, yeah. for instance. Yeah, like, Gravity is his ideal ve- vehicle, really. And I, yeah, and I wish it was just more straight down the line. And I don't think anyone would have complained if they took out the the sub backstory nonsense about uh, Sandra Bullock's dead kid or something. It's just what spoiler. It's so annoying. And there's also like hallucinations. Oh yeah, of George Clooney. Yeah, which is just dumb. I just wish it was it it like the technical accomplishments were enough in and of itself to sustain a whole film because it was really well done. So, yeah, should just, uh, but anyway, yeah. Um, so my suspicion with this was like, how is he going to work in this environment? I mean, obviously he started on less technically showy, showy films like Itinama Tambien and, and his prior films, but I was suspicious that there's going to be some sequences in this film that are just, that detract from what he's trying to do, um, which I think there are to some extent. Um, yeah, I would, I would agree. And I'm not sure the the style he adopts is is quite suited to the type of movie he wants to make or seems to want to make. Um, and I also feel like the the whole premise is it or it feels a little condescending to me. I agree with you. Um, especially like his his char- his actual uh, background is represented by the middle class characters, and he's kind of projecting his ideas about what he, he thinks it was like for the the lower status maids that helped raise him. Yeah, but he doesn't do a particularly good job of that. No. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't, I didn't hate the film by any means. Um, and and no, there's, did there's, there's, there's certainly stuff to enjoy in it. Um, and I didn't find it particularly boring or anything like that. Uh, I, I, I actually did find it somewhat boring in, in parts. Um, but I guess that's just me. Uh, but yeah, overall I, I was... Just hate uh, black and white on camera more. Do you know what I mean? Somewhat lukewarm on this. Yeah, I mean, sometimes uh, the choice of black and white <laughs> just... just. But I don't, I'm not really sure why he decided to to do it. I, mean, I guess I could find an interview or something like that, but 
Well, in these type of films, it feels like I want to be treated as a prestige film. Yeah. But if I'm trying to make an aesthetic argument for it. I guess he's trying to, like, you know, make it have, like, a shade of memory. But it's not like most film cameras during that time would use black and white stuff. I mean, maybe it's different in Mexico, but... It feels very self-conscious, uh, self-consciously moving away from his previous projects. To say, oh, I'm getting back to sure. my roots and doing something more stripped down and true to life and humble, you know. So I've, sure, sure. I've you know, switched to black and white. I'm, I'm dealing with these mundane domestic sort of situations. Right. Which, which makes me even more sort of uh, wary of, <laughs> in a way. What did you think of it? Yeah. Uh, I basically felt the same thing. Uh, I thought that the main failure was that it, it really failed to elaborate its central character to any large degree. Mm. Which I thought was just sort of like, it seems to be the film's like raison d'etre, right? And he just completely fails it making Cleo seem anything other than, like, the very, like, stereotypical, like, you know, hardworking made character, you know? <laughs> he doesn't really seem to have much of an inner life at all. Like, uh, yeah, I felt like he didn't criticize the upper-middle-class family enough either. No. Because it's definitely... But I, I, and, you know, obviously he... I, that may not be possible for him, because he's like, you know, it's, this is a very, like, nostalgic film to a degree. If not in terms of, like, the specific, like, political stuff that it, it brings up. Which does seem pretty. Um, I mean, he makes he makes it seem uh, like horrifying, you know, enough mm. <laughs> to fit the the time. But I mean, like, it doesn't really. It like it invokes these political uh, currents at the time, but it doesn't really go into them at all, you know. Yeah, and, and I read some notices about this that that talked about uh, the Cleo character and. Uh... Aparicio's performance as as sort of being befitting of someone who has to you know present a mask and yeah and perform a particular role in front of people but there are sequences like obviously outside of her duties and outside of the watch of um the family where she's not really much different (laughs) and even except for the language she speaks like switching between Spanish and, and Mixtec I don't know how to pronounce that dialect if it's pronounced differently to that spell but um I'm, I'm not sure i also think there's a little bit of a problem with with her performance um i think she definitely has presence in the film but i don't think she has the the tools to to maybe fill in the gaps in the screenplay that don't supply much interior life to her which yeah, another sure. actor might have brought something to that role which which might have strengthened uh the inherent weakness of the screenplay but I, I mean, I don't want to put too much fault on her because obviously, like, well, you can't have... when, it's, when it's a non-professional actor and and. But I mean, no, I'm saying it's it's more of a because there's plenty of directors who use non-professional actors and are able to coax like good performances out of them, right? Yeah, but it's 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 the director's job to do that. It's not the so I'm saying that it's person. it's more Caron's fault than yeah, her fault exactly. <laughs> I don't want to place blame on her because obviously she's. I mean, she seems like totally adequate to what's presented in the script, right? So. If it, if there's a failure of performance, it's it's more of his fault than than her fault. Yeah, definitely. But it, and especially I don't know, like compared to the kids, all of which seem fairly. I mean, I don't know if they're you know professional actor kids or anything like that, but um, they all seem a little more lived in than than she is. So let's let's talk a little bit about the uh, aesthetics of this um, beyond the the black and white, I guess. But I will say, like modern black and white usually doesn't look great no i I agree it it always looks like it's been 
turned black and white in post, which of course it would be. But it never it never has the quality of uh, original black and white. I don't know if I'm just being nostalgic about that, but I always it always it'd be strange if you were nostalgic about it. Well, in the, you know, you know, sort of being retrograde about it. Yeah. But there is like a marked difference between like the beauty of classic black and white films versus the current black and white films. It's something about the fidelity as well. Like it's so high fidelity. Yeah. It seems, it seems off. Yeah. But... I don't know what it is, but it, it just, it always looks not quite right. Some of it looks good. There's, there's some shots in this that looks good, but. We should mention that he was serving as his own director of photography too. I think he was the editor and stuff as well, wasn't he? Uh, looks like he co-edited it. So he's doing everything here. This is really a film, de Afonso Quran. It's one of those fake back to basics films. Um, I mean, it has a fifteen million dollar budget. Yeah, it would have required a lot of uh, expense and and um, resources to stage some of those sequences the way he shoots them. Yeah, especially the ones that are obviously like um, redressing like streets and stuff like that, like when she's walking to the movie theater. So that I would think you know, would be of great expense. As we know, particularly from Children of Men, um, Quan's very fond of showing off how he staged something. How good he is by by not like cutting between like a shot of a crowd and then the characters separately, but specifically showing you. No, I definitely did this. I definitely staged this. So I will show them next to a window, and outside the window, you'll see the whole street scene. I'm not gonna cheat. I definitely did this. Yeah, all I can think about is like just them rehearsing it. Like that's the only thing that comes to my mind when I watch these sequences. I'm just like, wow, that must have taken a lot of rehearsal. And I don't even like, I can't even like appreciate the achievement in that way, you know? Yeah, and that kind of happened with Children of Men as well. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's worse in Children of Men than here. Just because, but this one was way less technically showy than that one is too. But and there is there is a balance because there's nothing wrong with like an immersive sort of camera movement that follows a character and really you know, in, in a sustained take through a sequence. Yeah. Like, that can be really effective. But um, when it's so self-conscious and it seems to be designed to, to show <laughs> his staging capabilities, then it, it just it just distracts, I think. It has the opposite effect. Yeah. I mean, I think his whole style is sometimes quite distancing. Uh, so when this film sort of opens up, the, the dominant sort of... Uh, aesthetic it's going for in terms of camera placement camera movement and editing is this sort of pulled back shot almost a long shot yeah with the characters quite small in the frame uh, especially cleo going about her business and this sort of uh omniscient camera movement sort of tilt uh panning around uh on a on a constrained axis like on a as if it's on a tripod yeah it almost felt like a surveillance yeah like a surveillance exactly um, so it does it does create a distancing effect immediately, um, and I presume there's some intent behind uh, those those type of decisions. But it, it kind of exacerbates the problems of not really getting a handle on Clea's character and and her interior life throughout the film. And uh, on the stage, uh, returning to the staging thing, the, the there's like a couple of showy sequences, the aforementioned or the alluded to sequence in which there's like a rebellion in the streets uh, while yeah. uh, Cleo is shopping for a crib for her child. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a protest by the students who are um, massacred by a uh, 
paramilitary gang. Then uh, the sort of uh, the scene the film sort of builds up to is one in which um, they're at the beach, the family and Cleo, and she saves two of the children from potentially drowning. And it's one sustained tracking shot into the ocean and out again. <laughs> and the only thing I can think about is like, wow, it's it must have been really hard to keep the camera steady when they were doing that. Yeah, all I'm thinking of is where is the camera? Like, how is it suspended yeah. over here? Is it on this weird sort of crane thingamajig that's, that's on a track suspended in the air or something? I don't know. Uh, and obviously there are, there are films that use these sort of distanciation or alienation effects. Like, you know... Um, yeah, like Antonioni so, style sort of stuff. Yeah, or... Yeah, and like Fassbender, mm. we mentioned earlier. But it's hard to, like, I don't know, it didn't seem to resonate, especially with the the themes of the film that are brought up, right? Which is strange. And I, I'm, I, I'm honestly a little surprised that so many people have had such a response to this film. Because the whole film is structured around her character. It doesn't really try to explore anyone else's perspective independent of her and their relationship to her. And for that type of character study... She, she's often the central character in the frame. Yeah, so. you really you really need to get closer. You can't be too distant from that type of character. Yeah. Um, like, it's not, it's not just presenting it as, like, a tableau of the situation or anything like that. And it needed a more, I don't know, humanistic aesthetic to go along with that or something. Something that, that gave us access to her a little bit better. Or, I mean, with something that, like... Um... Or, I mean, or just make her, you know, one of the central characters as opposed to, like, the... I mean, you can still make her the central focus, but, yeah. you know, it just felt... It felt like, yeah, there's, like, a push and pull between the, the aesthetic and the, the... Like, what seems to be the intent, which um, sort of destroyed both of them to a degree. It did feel condescending the way he did try and uh, express her character, to put it weirdly. So, like, initially, in the early scenes, it's kind of, it's kind of, when it's showing, like, um, Cleo when she's interacting with people of her social status in a, in a different dialect and away from the family. It's trying to show how, you know, vivacious and full of life she is, right? Yeah. <laughs> that seemed to be the intent of those early scenes, which, which comes with its own degree of condescension, I think, from Quaron's perspective. And then he's like, okay, now what do we do? Oh, let's let's implant a tragedy into her life let's let's have this miscarriage storyline and then have this heroic moment at the end to make the family love her to it out. <laughs> like the the see so so what happens is to spoil it but yeah she's she's not like i mean i don't know like she's not imbued with any traits other than the most like sanctified like she's not she has she's not pre- presented with a single flaw in fact no like, the closest it gets to that is her admission that she didn't want a kid, but that's not a flaw. Yeah. Because <laughs> she didn't no. intend to be pregnant. I mean, but I could I could see that becoming, like, the emotional center of the film if it wasn't, like, just treated as, like, a, a reveal or, like, a, you know, weight in the film motivational thing. But, yeah, the, um, the emotional catharsis that the whole film has been leading up towards that comes at the end of this sequence where she saves the kid from drowning... And they all have a big communal hug and say how much they love Cleo. And she's crying. And that's the poster shot. How they're a, fi- how they're a family. Like that, that sequence was so trite, I would say. Yeah. 
Because like yeah, because that like that sequence seems to let the family off the hook. It does for some of the crappy stuff he's shown uh, previously. I mean, he doesn't really show the kids are crappy, which I think is a flaw. Because that's his that's his stand in. I mean, because he's not going to. Because it's his it's his like own experience, right? Because I'm assuming these kids aren't don't always treat the maids respectfully. No, presumably not. But yeah, she's never like. I mean, the the parents treat her badly at times, but the kids are just, they seem just sort of, like, loving towards her. Uh, did you enjoy the references to the rules of the game? Uh, they went over my head, even though I've seen the rules of the game a couple of times. Wow. You're such a... What were the references? A, no, I'm not. Well, obviously, there's the scene where they go to the, um, it's their, like, friend's house for Christmas, and they have that, that sequence where they go and, like, shoot guns. Which seemed very reminiscent. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Um, but the, the part that really sort of put me into the mindset of him, this is like him trying to make a Renoir film, was uh, when, after she exits the theater when her the person who uh, impregnates her and then runs away, um, after she admits that to him, and she walks out of the theater, there's the guy who's just like hanging out with the skeleton dancing, which is which I, I mean, you know, could be completely unconnected, but it's... It, it was very reminiscent to me of the, the bit in the rules of the game where they go to the, uh, or where they have the, the macabre show, uh, right. you know? Yeah. So, and that, that, that also sort of like made me, um, like this film less. So it's just like, kind of just which, which I was watching the rules of the game or, you know, like any Renoir film. So, um, but yeah, I was, I was very mixed on this. Um, I mean, but we should, we should, cause there, there were some parts that I, I did, find to be effective um i don't know about you yeah i mean i was skeptical about the fact that he had engineered this uh, miscarriage plot but the actual sequence of the miscarriage is somewhat effective i didn't find that effective (laughs) Uh, i was just really certain she was gonna have a miscarriage (laughs) so i was just like okay (laughs) it's happening now no i thought i thought um uh maybe that was a more effective bit of her performance in that sequence. Yeah. Um, but I really like the part where the her um, her boyfriend just does martial arts all naked. Yeah. <laughs> that was enjoyably strange. Um, yeah, but there there are just moments. I mean, none of them are really coming to mind right now, <laughs> to be honest. But there are moments that I, I found um, effective enough, I guess. Like, I like the bit up until like the the final sequence where they go to the beach. I like I like the bit where they go to the like hotel and the the mother. Uh, you find out that the mother was like a biochemist. Like I thought that was that and it added an interesting dynamic. I think, um, but yeah, on the whole, it was I wouldn't say I was disappointed because I wasn't really looking forward to watch this. But no, I wasn't either. Uh, so I guess it lived up to my expectations of being kind of mediocre. But yeah, whenever a film gets this widely praised, I'm a little skeptical of it. So maybe that's part of my problem. But I don't know. It was. It was. Um, I wonder if it would have been more effective as a as a film seen in the theater. But I'd never want to like credit that too much. I don't think it would have been more effective. Um, but because I feel like the way the majority of people are going to experience this is on a television at their house. Because I mean, I mean, it's still playing like the IFC center here, but I, I did not get much of a theatrical release at all. Cause you know, Netflix sucks. 
Um, I don't know about Australia. I mean, I see we played at like a festival or something like that. I mean, it 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 it, it is playing currently or was playing recently at uh, one of our cinemas. It's not like a normal release necessarily. Um, I'm not sure, but yeah, one of our specialized sort of cinemas was playing it. Um, I actually would be I would be kind of interested to see it in a uh, in a theater because apparently he did a or the sound was edited to have like a Dolby Atmos mix. Um, like it's 360 degrees or something. Yeah. Which I think would be interesting, but I mean, I don't know if it would add too much to it. Listen to her scrubbing that dog shit in 360 degrees. <laughs> Hell yes. There was a lot of shit, I'll give it that. Uh, so, I don't know. Uh, I kind of, I think I've said everything I wanted to say about Roma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, do you have any other words you'd like to spit out of your mouth about it? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to give the impression it's a terrible film uh, by any stretch, but I would say it's 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 fairly average. And uh, even though I did criticise sort of the limitations of uh, Aparicio's performance, she's also, like, one of the only reasons to watch it, <laughs> yeah. I would say. Like, so... she's quite a presence in the film. Um, even if it doesn't really go anywhere. <laughs> no. It's it's weird that how selective he is about highlighting her character versus like all the other um members of their like their staff. Yeah. Like especially the driver who doesn't even get a name as far as I could tell. But there was just I just thought it was a little weird. Uh, I don't know, a lot of people talk about how beautiful the song is, but I didn't really find it to be that like I didn't find the aesthetic to be that like um sumptuous or or gorgeous or appealing so you know it's kind of it's kind of strange in that way fuck it yeah fuck it (laughs) (laughs) fucking garbage (laughs) it it actually genuinely enrages me like looking at that poster knowing what that sequence entails (laughs) that's funny it's so like try i was really annoyed by the uh wind's flare i'll say that because it's just like all right, I get it. All right, Jesus Christ, come on. <laughs> and they hold that pose for so long. Mm. Uh, yeah, I did not did not love that one. Um, what do you think of the uh, the husband? I did enjoy the um uh that the weird uh, editing in the of of him like driving the car into the uh narrow garage. It was like it was almost like pornographic in a way. <laughs> I kind of like the blunt parallel between the two male figures in the film uh the husband of the family and uh the guy who in impregnates and then abandons Cleo. i do yeah. like the fact that they they go oh i just have to go here for a second i'll be back and they both <laughs> just never come back <laughs> one of them joins a paramil or right-wing paramilitary organization and one uh, goes diving it seems uh so just on regards to the the socio-political stuff both of us sort of lack context to say how accurate it was or anything like that or, or, or the full story behind it. To say really anything uh, authoritative on it. But on, on a superficial reading, it feels like it was rather superficially integrated into this film. Like it feels like it was incorporated in the sense of this was happening at the time and he remembers it and, and that sort of stuff. And it's to show a broader picture of the society around this this family, but it doesn't really link the two in any meaningful way. 
Like, it never really, um, I mean, I guess, like, by, just by their existence, you know, the, the family is identified with the order, you know, the, the dominant order, but it never, like, I mean, but none of the characters really seem to express any political leaning at all, except for that sort of, um, you know, blind adherence. I mean, except for the, the boyfriend, but even he seems like just like a pawn that's like gotten wrapped up in it. So, I don't know, it's, it's really, it's a really strange film. I mean, especially if you read, because I did a little bit of research, I did the barest minimum of research, which, uh, apparently the, that, like, uprising was supported by the, uh, CIA, which is concerning. Of course it was. <laughs> and that's sort of, that's sort of, well, yeah, I mean, pretty much every terrible thing that happened in South America, uh, and Central America, uh, for the last century or and so. the Middle East find the traces of yeah and the Middle East and Asia <laughs> <laughs> and, and parts of Europe as well <laughs> you can find uh, traces of uh, America in it so good stuff <laughs> love my country <laughs> you know what my research was for this uh, Jackie Goff <laughs> no I watched an interview with uh, Alfonso Cuaron on Jimmy Fallon <laughs> <laughs> How was that? And Jimmy Fallon really probed him about the, the socio-political context. That <laughs> so I got a lot of good detail. What was the uh, what, what was the interview about? I mean, the only tidbit I got was like, uh, which was something that you you probably would have guessed anyway, uh, is um, Yulita Aparicio didn't know how to swim like her character when she was filming that famous sequence. Oh yeah, I just read that on Wikipedia. Mm. So. So, so you know, Karan should be uh, uh, celebrated for willing to sacrifice children for his heart, I guess. He should really start stop making films that have art house pretenses and really just be a great action director or something. Yeah, he should make like, a Mission Impossible movie. Yeah. Though, I guess that's going to be wrapped up with uh, Christopher McQuarrie for the next couple of years. But the thing is, I feel like... I feel like he, he has a pretension towards left-wing politics that would uh, make him not take those jobs. Mm. <laughs> um, but I, he did that Harry Potter film, so who knows. Okay, is it okay if we take a pause here so I can use the bathroom real quick? Yeah. Okay, just give me one second. I don't want to decry the fact that he is impressive at staging sequences. It's just that the context for them when they when they're given this elevated uh, context within a certain story that he's trying to tell, um, they end up detracting from it. Um, but those skills could be put to bear on like a just a great fun genre film or something. Yeah, I think I think they those sequences are more impressive to me when put in that context too. And they often fit the actual, like, text of the film as well, which, you know, like, genre films, or action films are all about 
performing physical feats, so you can match that by having performing complicated camera feats as well. His his ideal uh, vehicle should be like a Mad Max Fury Road type thing, right? Yeah. Not necessarily like specific to that aesthetic, but that's the type of like prestige action picture that I think he'd be really good at. Or maybe not. Maybe he wouldn't be. <laughs> but I feel like then you just then we just get a children of men, which I think is sort of what that is in a way, which is a much inferior film to Mad Max Fury Road, at least in my opinion. Yes, it is. I agree. Um, so I, I think I am done with Roma. Uh, though I assume I'll be forced to think about it a lot because uh, I am imagining it'll be nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards. Um, so, great. But great it will, stuff. it'll lose to Green Book. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, uh, Side Unseen, it's probably better than Green Book. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> going to do now is uh, as part of an ongoing series to um, <laughs> re-rank the IMDb 250 uh, as captured at a specific day uh, which day it is I've forgotten <laughs> some, uh, some some day in January as it appeared that day in January um, and because ranking all 250 would take forever we're going to do them 50 at a time and do things in between that um, so what films are we going to talk about today on this segment of IMDb ranking well Hunter, I caught up with the Godfather films, specifically The Godfather Part 1 and The Godfather Part 2. And I may have snuck in a third Godfather, but we'll get to that. But um, can I... Is this related to the um, film uh, The Last Godfather, um, a vehicle for the Korean comic uh, Shim Hyung-rae, uh, which, is, which is like his American debut where he comes... Uh, and he's like the son of Harvey Hytel and he becomes like a, a mafia boss. Is it, is it related to that film? Yes, it is, it is that film. Split into two parts. Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> they just, is, it, is it like longer? Is it just the same length as the... It's just film? the same film, but one of them has part two in the credits. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> okay, that's funny. Good joke. Um, right, yes. So what, what are these Godfather movies? I've never heard of them. Okay, well, well I have heard of them, but let's just pretend that I haven't heard of them. So what are they? Uh, the Godfather movies, uh, some movies that uh, Francis Ford Godfather made in, in the 70s. <laughs> so funny. Uh, based on the novel by Mario Godfather. <laughs> um, uh, I actually saw... an. Okay, so uh, in preparation for watching the Godfather films, I actually watched an interview with Mario Puzo. Uh, the author of the novel, and um, I've read that novel. You've read it, yeah. I read it when I was in high school. Wow. Um, but there was an interesting quote from him. Uh, it has a hilarious subplot, which you may have heard of if you know anything about the novel, where um, uh, <laughs> Sonny and the woman he has an affair with are such a good match because she has a he has an abnormally large penis and she has a, a abnormally deep vagina. <laughs> well, that's specified in the novel. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so for for some reason they cut, cut that out of the film, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't understand. I don't understand it, but yep. I mean, they may have shot it because there was extra bits that they did shoot. <laughs> they they shot his penis. <laughs> that must have hurt. Um. But anyway, no. I was watching an interview with uh, Mario Pizzo about it, 
Uh-huh. And he says something really interesting. He said, It's a me, Mario. <laughs> Is that it? Are you done? That's it. That's my That's review so of The Godfather. <laughs> Parts one and two. Yeah. Uh, so, no, so I had seen no, shut up. The Godfather before uh, when I was a teenager. Uh-huh. And I don't remember it making much of an impression on me uh, mm. at the time. I, I, I thought it was. I remember like, liking it as a teenager. I thought it was okay. Just in the way that I was like, yeah, okay. But I was a little bit bored, I, I remember. Uh-huh. It sounds like a classic. I, I told you the story where I was, watched Taxi Driver and I didn't like the music. Yeah. Yeah, so this sounds like a classic uh, story like that. Teenage reaction. Um, yeah. And I, 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 I think at the time I, I may have been watching things like. Seven Samurai and stuff, mm-hmm. which I'm sure a lot of people would find more boring than The Godfather. Um, but not you. But but I'm I'm not 100 percent sure. I can't remember where it, where it fell in my in my viewing habits at the time. But uh, yeah, I just remember watching it on on TV one day, um, and uh, being yeah yeah that's fine. And uh, yeah, so I, I knew I had to revisit it. Um, so I had seen it before, but for this IMDb project, in order to rank it fairly. I thought I had to watch it again, so I did. I, I will also be watching it again for this, but not now. And also so that I could watch The Godfather Part 2 with, with some proper context. Because um, I'd probably forgotten it. Um, but I was, uh, I was pleasantly surprised uh, on my revisiting of The Godfather. Um, how actual, actually entertaining it is. It's uh, for a film that uh, approaches three hours... And is not uh, super fast paced or anything like that. Uh, it's it's sumptuously entertaining. I would I would say I, I found it very very watchable. Uh, such high praise. Very watchable. Good film. Put that on the poster. The thing that uh, that actually I appreciated the most about it was the cinematography by Gordon Willis which uh, is some of the best colour cinematography I've seen, I think. Wow. So he famously underexposed uh, a lot of the sequences in order to draw out the shadows and give the skin this orange glow. Uh, and it looks great. It has a really distinct and um, almost painterly look. Did he do The Godfather 3 as well? He did, he did all three parts, yes. Mm. Gotcha. And he did a lot of Woody Allen films uh, as well. So he's... Uh, Unimpeachable. Yeah. We directed a film called Windows. <laughs> this this sounds like it is aged poorly. Um, erotic thriller. Uh, Emily Hollander, Ta- Talia Shire, is the subject of a lesbian obsession of Andrea Glasson, uh, who is played by Elizabeth Ashley. Right, name. Talia Shire's in it. Couple is our own sister, who's also yeah. in The Godfather. Um, but I assume that that particular plot line uh, has not aged well. Nope. But I cannot say for sure because I haven't So, so I, I would say just on the basis of the cinematography, The Godfather is worth watching. It's that <laughs> it's that good. Um, it's that beautiful. But the film itself is is very enjoyable, very well put together. Very entertaining cast, even with my reservations about Marlon Brando's somewhat ridiculous performance. It works. Mm-hmm. I mean, he does have presence. 
undeniable presence. So you can imagine him being an intimidating figure in the family, um, even if he you can barely understand a word he says. Uh, are you going to do it for me? Look at him massacre, my boy. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's even more farty than that. He's gonna put some marbles in your mouth. Cotton wool. Perfect. It's like a crazy frog voice. Yeah, yeah, just just like he's a crazy frog man, right? Well, please continue. No, that's the Iota of Dr. Moreau. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, and then and then I, I jumped into, for the very first time... Wait, that's how, that's how you had to say? <laughs> so I just, what else do you want me to say about The Godfather? It's a good film. I don't know. Let's talk about it. Very, very classical, good classical... Okay, that was good. That's how I did filmmaking. it. Filmmaking. Okay. What about The Godfather? Uh, Pas de Dua. Pas de Dua is... Uh, so this was the first time that I've ever seen this much-lauded second instalment. Often referred to as the greatest sequel of all time. Uh-huh. And Coppola's still firing on all cylinders, so you, you can still see that the, the person who made The Godfather is... The person who made The Godfather too. <laughs> also the person who made The Godfather Part Two, Based on the uh-huh. credits, like it said, it was directed by the same person, so you could definitely see that. Um, that was really funny. Anyway, I, I like I like the ambition to shade the narrative by going in both directions in terms of investigating the past and the future uh-huh. from the end of the previous film. Um, but I don't necessarily think it comes together as a hugely satisfying whole, uh, especially when viewed next to the first film. It's it's certainly uh, significantly more convoluted in terms of its plot, and like my, all the sequences are pretty great and on par with the first film, and in some cases even superior to them. And in some ways, it's, it's more morally complex than the first film, but it tries to inter intercut the story of Vito Corleone, played by Robert De Niro in the past sort of building this empire and uh what's his name al pacino (laughs) (laughs) that's it um going to going further into the dark side like like an anakin skywalker type i would say mason pacino (laughs) (laughs) um and the robert de niro sequences are, are great but they don't really go anywhere particularly satisfactory in and of themselves, and it, it doesn't feel that, that balanced. There's not that many. There's a lot less of the Robert De Niro sequences, obviously, than there are of the Al Pacino stuff. So it, it initially, at points, it feels like it's this parallel narrative, and then it just stays with Pacino for a large stretch of the film, and then it goes back to do a little bit more, and nothing really happens with it, and then it kind of ends. As all movies do. So it, it might be a film... If, if the critical reassessment of it is any, any judge, that improves upon reflection and further viewings. 
uh, it's less immediately accessible than the first Godfather film, certainly as a narrative. So it could well be that I might reevaluate it, but as it stands, I found it less satisfying than the original Godfather. But still good. But still great, yeah. Okay. Now that's all the films I watched for this project okay. of ours. Well, I only watched one for my contribution. I was going to watch two, but one was not available. So I was like uh, twice as good as you this week. Yeah, but next week I'll be four times as good as you. Fuck off, I'm going to watch eight films. Fuck you. No, I'll probably watch even fewer because I'm going to be really busy this week. Jacking it? Yeah. What else did I do? Smacking um, it. Smacking it and jacking it. Smacking it against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually the person making that making noise. Yeah, smacking, jacking, and, uh, you know, working with kids. Those are the three things in my life. Sweet. Yeah. Um, see you. Uh, I watched the film. Do you know this guy, uh, Charlie Chaplin? No. Or no, Charles no. Chaplin? Theater of Charles Chaplin? Oh, wait, the pedo. <laughs> yeah, the pedo. <laughs> you got it. The, the only notable thing about Char- Charlie Chaplin is that he's a pedophile. Famous pedophile, <laughs> Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> uh, just like Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yep, yep. Uh, you know um, that guy. So, but he was not a pedophile at the time he watched this movie. I mean, presumably, no. I guess it was after. Wait a minute. When did he marry the his child bride? Wait a second. I feel like it was like the thirties, maybe. Oh uh, yeah, I guess that was that was before. But I'm he not was sure. married to her for a while. Yeah, it was it was before. Uh, well, anyway, the film I watched was uh, was Modern Times. That's the movie I watched. I was planning on watching City Lights, but it was not available for some reason. But, uh, yes. So, Modern Times, uh, probably the most lauded film, except for maybe The Great Dictator that Charlie Chaplin directed. No, I would say City Lights is his most lauded film. Maybe. Um, okay. I would say definitely. I'd say City Lights is okay. the one. Well, okay then. Mr. Uh, I, th- I thought you'd... I, I, uh, I don't care. <laughs> I would even... Like, Modern Times and um, The Great Dictator do get a lot of write-ups and stuff. But I would say the two that maybe place highest in a lot of lists would be City Lights and The Gold Rush, even. Okay. I don't, I don't care. <laughs> Is that enough of an answer for you? Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Um, so I watched, uh, Modern Times, and it was fine. <laughs> it was okay. There's some good sequences, I guess. Um, yeah, it turns out that, uh, Charlie, Charlie Chaplin does not like Modern Times. Uh, but where would he be without them? Without the development of the camera? That's a great question. Without the mechanical development of the, the camera, the apparatus of the camera. It's a great question. There's not really much of that tension inherent in the film. <laughs> um... Uh, it's it's. I'm reading this book right now. Uh, if I can give a a plug called The Material Ghost, which has a long chapter about um, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin uh, and their sort of respective differences. Um, In that and... one's good and the other's not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. Um, but uh, there's something that that is striking to me about uh, Charlie Chaplin's persona. 
uh, in that it's oftentimes positioned as being like, unlike Buster Keaton, whose characters seem, um, you know, sympathetic is the right word, but uh, aren't always the focus of attention of the entire film, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, uh, like, it, it, they, they, to some degree, like, uh, push away his individuality. While both of the Charlie Chaplin films I've watched are all about him and his character. Um, and and trying to elicit emotional responses in the audience to his situation. Yeah, which is true to an extent with Buster Keaton too, I think. But uh, it doesn't feel quite as egotistical as it does. No, it doesn't feel like Charlie he's trying Chaplin. to get people to like mourn the situation no. that his character Well, he, he doesn't seem like he's as sentimental as... No. Charlie Chaplin is, but uh, but it, yeah, it, especially in this film, it, it's it feels sort of uh, egotistical in that the tramp is positioned as like the you know the moral center of the film, uh, which is especially strange because like uh, despite a lot of people reading this is like a you know like a left leaning or a film that is really a critical of like modern times, um, except for the like the sequence which I mean. Uh, is the one that I assumed took up the the majority of the film, but it's really only the first like twenty minutes, uh, which is the bit in the factory. I mean, there's two bits in the factory, but uh, the rest of the film is very like sort of uh, weirdly mixed in its politics. I think <laughs> I'm not really talking about the movie per se, but um, he's positioned as being both better than like the both like the factory owners and sort of the. Uh, people in prison and uh the like the left-wing like people who marched to some degree mm. which is strange uh and i don't know there was something like very um uh incoherent almost about it to me uh in part because like you know if you're if you're trying to make a left-wing statement it's kind of hard to to make that case via like a uh pronounced individualism i think um and the there's a sequence, especially where the tramp gets mistaken for a uh, the leader of like a, a communist march and thrown in jail, and you would think that it would be like about him like escaping or something, right? But in fact, he actually prevents a prison break, <laughs> which I thought was really strange, just considering like yeah, I don't know, like prisons uh, and the uh, penal system in general are such a, a horrible thing, and one of the primary ways that you know, the ruling classes are able to oppress, um, you know, the citizenry of all cultures. Uh, so it's weird to see him sort of endorse it in that way. Mm. Um, but there's a great scene in it where he does cocaine, so. <laughs> uh, but it has some it has some pretty enjoyable gags, uh, I think. Uh, but I, I, I never really, uh, in that, I think... In both this and in this and the kid, and I guess also the immigrant, uh, there's always like a uh, love interest plot, which I think is good in the immigrant, um, but it feels a little like it maybe tacked on is the wrong word, but um, perfunctory. I don't know. Yeah, where it just seems like him just trying to be like, I don't know. It, it almost seems like another like sort of egotistical stroke, where like of course like the beautiful women will eventually fall for. Him, which again compared to like Buster Keaton, whose films also often have love interests, but often like uh, it's less about them like 
finding him attractive more and more about him trying to impress them, right? Mm. Which is not necessarily the case in, in any of the Chaplin films I've seen. Um, and I don't know. I, I definitely would, wouldn't say I, or I definitely enjoyed modern times, but, uh, I don't know. It, it was a very sort of mixed response for me, I think. Um, and, uh, but there are some interesting qualities. So like, I didn't know that it was, uh, I always thought that the great dictator was the first like sound film that he did, but this is, it, 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 it I guess it is the first, like, one that, you know, includes, like, dialogue and stuff like that. Um, but this film is sort of a weird mixture of um, a lot of, like, silent comedy and intertitles, but it also has spoken dialogue. Well, yeah, he fam- he famously sort of eschewed the, the trend of the time in the uh, coming of the sound era of immediately transferring his style to accommodate the new technology. Yeah, but, I mean, there are some sequences in this that use sound effects and, like, dialogue that's spoken, though, which is strange. He mixed in elements of the new technology, but he didn't yeah. wholeheartedly subscribe to it for some time. Yeah, um, which I think makes this film, like, a really interesting experience for that reason. And it's weird seeing this sort of, like, mutant uh, hybrid of a, a film. that And, it, like, it, it, it's incorporated into, like, the, the narrative text of the film, too, where, like... <laughs> There's a sequence where, like, um, they're like, okay, now we're going to listen to a record, and then you hear a record start playing, which is very odd. Um, but, and there's a great sequence where he's, like, strapped to this machine that force feeds him, which I thought was very enjoyable. Uh, but yeah, I would say it's okay. It's definitely worth a watch. Uh, I remain unconvinced of Chaplin as a comedic genius. The best of his films that I've seen is uh, The Gold Rush. Um, okay. So well, I do recommend we'll to, that. If I'll you, have to watch that <laughs> if you get a chance. for this project. <laughs> yes. Um, and there are a couple of versions, and I recommend the silent one if you can get it, because he redid it in the 40s or something for some reason. Oh, really? That's yeah. interesting. He oh. redid it with new music that he composed for it. So on the egotistical thing, I guess, is his... Um, and in contrast to Keaton, he tried to be a one-man band as much as possible. Yeah. Oh, and the music is terrible, too. <laughs> which, which I'm sure he <laughs> wrote, right? Yeah. Because he does the music, editing, direction, screenplay, everything, production, and he had his own studio and everything, so he, he tried to be as self-sufficient as possible, And whereas Keaton didn't really have any aspersions about collaborating with others. Yeah. And a lot of his films were co-directed. Yeah. And even though um, it's debated... Uh, how much the the credit kind of works because the cameraman is not credited to him at all in terms of its direction, but by all accounts, he should be considered at least co-director. Yeah, but it's hard to it's hard to parse that when we don't have like the complete like you know production histories of stuff. Um, but yeah, um, so yeah, I was I was um, I was I was a little disappointed by Minor Times, I'll say. So, there you go. And I feel like uh, the, there's a sequence in it that reminded me a lot of Metropolis, but I think it's done better in Metropolis, so <laughs> it's kind of like, okay. And I didn't really laugh at all, which is different. I mean, I'm kind of like, I wasn't really expecting to, because obviously, like, the, the style of comedy is not something that I am, is like, wasn't, like, naturalized in it, you know? Yeah. It's not something that I, I am inherently going to be, like, 
but I still like when I watch like a Keaton film, I will laugh. <laughs> but uh, I didn't. I didn't really find it to be that funny. I think so. Keaton's version of, of slapstick uh, is is way more in tune with modern comedic sensibilities than yeah. someone like Chaplin. Um, but there are some, there are still some sequences that I think are funny. Like there's one bit where he um, goes to a department store, and it was actually. Uh, uh, slightly Keaton-esque in that he, he seems to be performing this really dangerous stunt uh, where he basically is like, oh, because like, you know, he's like a, the tramp and he gets a job as a, a department store watchman or night watchman um, and he invites his like love interest who's played by, who was played by his then wife, Paulette Godard um, and, and they just sort of like, you know, um, have the good life uh, and they go to like the area where they have toys, um, and the tramp's like, "Look, I can, I can skate while blindfolded." And he keeps on going up to this edge, which would fall to the lower levels. That's modern times. Yeah, yeah I'm done. Um, uh, before we proceed on to bonus features, mm-hmm. an action-packed episode of bonus features. Um, uh, I did want to discuss the news that you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And I shouldn't say things like that you mentioned earlier because you, you probably cut out the earlier mentions. That sounds stupid. But anyway, yeah. Um, now that I've said that, I've covered myself both ways. Um, you mentioned the fact that Christopher McQuarrie uh, has been signed on to direct two more Mission Impossible films, right? Um, and initially, that news was exciting because uh, I think we both agree that that Fallout is like the best entry in the mm-hmm. franchise. Except for part two, <laughs> number two. Um, Shut up. Uh, but it's hard to beat, really. Like that's kind of like a pinnacle of what that that franchise can yeah. be. Yeah, always said it's come to to be. So it's kind of great that like the people who made that happen will be returning, right? The same team. But the fact that it's being shot back to back, I find a little bit discouraging because, um, I I I like Mission Impossible films as self-contained entries yeah more so than anything that bleeds into one another like i don't particularly like the fact that fallout had to follow on from stuff established in um the previous macquarie and and, uh road nation Nation. but but uh, arguably that makes fallout better and you know what i mean well because there's (laughs) less because it because it can dispense with like the you know the villain villain backstory and stuff like that yeah but potentially but I don't, I, ha, I like the fact that 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 happened sort of naturally just with Christopher McQuarrie making two installments in a row, but split, but not back to back makes me suspicious that he might try something more ambitious with the Fallout one and, and try and link them together, which I, I, I would prefer just nice standalone entries. I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt based on how much I enjoyed Fallout. I'm sure they'll still be enjoyable, but uh, I, don't, I don't really care, like, enough about, like, the universe to, like... Yeah. Well, but I feel like the pinnacle has been achieved, right? So... Yeah. <laughs> it would be hard for them to top Fallout, no matter what they do. Well, that's what that's why they're probably going to go in a dumb direction of what, uh, trying to have Hopefully more... they go the direction that I've always wanted to go, which is just a movie that's just nothing but mask stuff for the entire film. <laughs> <laughs> and if there's a bloody, like... If there's, like, a... A lack of resolution in the first one. I'll be really pissed off. I think. If if there's what? If it does like an Infinity War or something, it has like a yeah. cliffhanger at the at the end of the first film. A literal cliffhanger. Yeah. If, what if they just? What if they recycled the shot of? Uh, 
for Mission Impossible 2, <laughs> and that's the idea. Would you like that? <laughs> well, I'd like anything that reminds me of Mission Impossible 2. What if they just remade Mission Impossible 2, but this, like, doing the exact same shots and uh, the same actors and everything? <laughs> <laughs> Would you like that? Well, I've been waiting for John Paulson to come back to the franchise before <laughs> installments. <laughs> So you did five installments, I guess, or whatever it is. Four, no, four. It's been four. No, there's six movies. But it's been four since two. Oh, sure, sure. I thought I thought you were just saying uh, the number of installments minus is. Okay, so um, well, you've registered your app pension, so we fucking move on. No one cares. I I presume that you'll cut this out. <laughs> no, this is this is the news bit. Our famous news sequence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. News. What's the news theme song? News like, from news one. from a month ago. <laughs> You gotta sing this one. News from a month ago. <laughs> yep, okay, that was good. That was good. Um, okay, so shall we move on to bonus features? Yes. Bonus features, bonus. Bonus features. Bonus features, bonus. I've watched quite a bit of, of films, so maybe I'll go first, and then you can go, and we can talk about Bandersnatch together. Yep. <laughs> okay. uh, so, I watched this film called Newness. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great, was it not? Oh, no, I'm not going to say. Um, so, I, I rewatched Greetings, uh, which I watched for the last podcast, um, but I watched it with the commentary track, which was, <laughs> uh, it was, it was okay. It was one of those, com- have you watched many commentary tracks? Not for years, I got, I got sick of, of I, I never liked the idea of um oversaturating myself with the film and getting bored with the film because i like the idea of revisiting it and I, I kind of feel like watching it again with a commentary track wastes a potential viewing in a way that's what i've always thought okay so um but i so i watched greetings with the commentary track um by glenn kinney who's a critic for rogerebert.com and the new york times or something uh, and it was a pretty bad commentary track all told um because it falls into a trap, which I've experienced sometimes, where the commentary track is just someone just saying what's on screen. <laughs> you know, it's like the best commentary yep, tracks. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but it has some interesting information. So, I don't know. It was okay. Um, I watched the wedding party, which is a very early Brian De Palma film, which he co-directed with Wilford Leach and uh, a woman named. Uh, I'm open up. Uh, oh yeah, of course. Forget the woman's name. Yeah, I'm a huge misogynist. Cynthia Monroe. Um, and it's okay. <laughs> uh, it's, it is it is very sort of indebted to like silent comedy. Um, but it doesn't really recycle those tropes. Uh, well, it's just sort of like whatever. Uh, it just felt really long. Uh, but it has some moments that I thought were pretty amusing. It's got and Bobby De Niro. Really, yeah, but hilariously, uh, he's not the lead. And he only plays a really minor character. Oh, really? <laughs> Which, if you look at the poster uh, and the... <laughs> The poster just says, it's Robert De Niro is the main character in a picture of his face with hair that is not like his hair in the wedding party. So I think they may have taken that from another <laughs> film, which is even funnier to me. Um, actually, the poster in general is just hilarious because it doesn't really expose anything about the movie. Um, anyway, um, but so, yeah, it's, it's only, it's. I would say if you like Brian De Palma, it maybe is worth a watch just to see him. Because that was really the first film he, he directed uh, that was released after both greetings and another film called Murder a la Mode. But if you like Brian De Palma, it's, it's I think, worth a watch. But uh, otherwise, don't watch it. So there you go. 
Uh, I watched the Buster Keaton comedy Cops, which you've also seen, mm-hmm. um, which I watched solely because I heard about its ending, which is indeed hilarious. Um, but uh, Cops uh, ends with Buster Keaton being killed by cops, so good stuff. It's a treatise on police brutality. Yeah, exactly. So unlike Chaplin, who is pro-police, uh, Buster Keaton seems anti-police. So I'll say. Um, and then I concluded my trilogy of watching Brian De Palma films uh, based on that box set that I got uh, by watching Hi Mom, which is his sequel to Greetings. Uh, it is a much superior film. Uh, it follows Robert De Niro's character from that film as he returns to Vietnam uh, and becomes radicalized. <laughs> And it's just hilarious and strange um, and just sort of a great reflection on uh, the 70s and film culture and modern art. And I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, it's really shot up in the rankings of De Palma films for me. Uh, it's easy, easily the best of his like, early films, I think. Um, a film that I was a little more mixed on was Sorry to Bother You by uh, the coup uh, impresario Boots Riley, um, which got a lot of acclaim last year. Uh, and I was... I was uh, less than completely uh, stirred up by it. Um, I thought the the political heart was in the right place, but the actual like comedy and the the stuff of the film felt a little um, I don't know. It just felt a little uh, bit much to me, and it, it felt like it could have used some punching up. I guess like it just didn't feel like the the comedy angle of it did not feel completely thought out I guess and so it, a lot of the jokes sort of landed flat and it has a very strange turn to science fiction at the end which I did not think was entirely successful um, even if I could kind of get the metaphorical bent of it I did was not uh, completely satisfied by it so uh, sort of an okay film sorry to bother you I watched the uh, film Vice which was terrible <laughs> Uh, it was just glib and stupid and, uh, but more than anything, the, I think its primary flaw is that it manages to make its entire, it did, I, I feel like it's trying to elicit like outrage or something, but it's just boring. So it fails at that. Uh, it's just very bad. I couldn't imagine a biopic about Rachel Weiss being any good. Sorry, you continue. That was so stupid. <laughs> You should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, especially Christian Bale played her. That's a little, like, it's a little weird casting. Gender blind. Uh, and finally I watched Support the Girls, which is a Andrew uh, Budziowski film, which I really loved, um, which is just about uh, a manager at a Hooters. Do you know what Hooters is? Yes, I do. Do they have those in Australia? I think they might. I've never seen one, but... Uh, but you know what the you know what I'm getting yeah yeah no, I think there might be okay. some in Australia. I don't really want to look um, it up. It's okay, but a Hooters esque establishment. Uh, it's just very uh, humane and funny and um, intricately woven, and I really loved it a lot. Uh, so that support the girls. What did you watch? The only other film I watched was a film that was related to the two films I watched for our IMDb project. And that is, of course, The Godfather Part 3. Watching The Godfather Part 3 now, it comes with the weight of uh, critical disappointment and 
outright derision at certain elements of the film, namely Sofia Coppola's inclusion and performance. Um, so often when a film has that reputation, uh, I kind of approach it with an open mind as much as possible. And maybe <laughs> kind of like the opposite Roma effect. Yeah. Maybe tend to over, over praise it as a result, but I actually found it a, a fairly strong, uh, entry. Like it, it didn't feel jarring after seeing the first two. It felt part of a piece with them. Um, although it wasn't obviously intended as a trilogy at any point. What was the time period over which you watched these three films? Uh, I watched the Godfather and the Godfather part two, uh, basically one after another in one night. And then the next night I watched Godfather Part 3. Just because they were all gotcha. expiring from a streaming service, so I had to squeeze oh, them. Oh, gotcha. Um, and uh, so th- obviously The Godfather was never intended as, as more than one film initially. Right. And then it became a second film, which doesn't bear any relation to the novel except for the flashback sequences um, are in the original Godfather novel. Um, but the trajectory of the story isn't. Um, and then The Godfather 3 was just written by um, Coppola. I mean, Mario Pizzo is always credited as well. I'm not exactly sure of the extent of their collaboration. but um, Actually, someone else wrote a draft of uh, Godfather Part 3 in like 1978. And then Coppola rewrote it all. And I think one scene is kind of preserved... But um, he, he had no inclination to make Godfather Part 3, and it was only because one from the heart uh, was such a financial disaster that um, he accepted... Much later, though. Did he direct it in the 90s? 1990 is Godfather Part 3. Yeah, I don't think the timeline for that really... Um... No, no, but the, the f- financial ramifications from the disaster of one from the heart continued through the entire 80s. It was such a flop, so... But he directed films in between those, though. He did, yeah. But that was, yeah. I think, it's the f- like uh, Rumblefish. That's literally what he he quoted. He was quoted as saying, um, in one of the commentary tracks or something. But um, I think he probably had a few financial disasters in the eighties. Anyway, yeah, the Cotton Club was one, and uh, Tucker, the Man in His Dream. Zotrope so. was always in financial trouble, <laughs> basically. So, I mean, the, the Godfather, it wasn't set up for success, really, because he didn't necessarily want to make it in the first place um, yeah. until he had to. He couldn't get Robert Duvall to appear because he was incensed that he was being paid so much less than Al Pacino. And he doesn't regret it to this day. The, the character of uh, Al Pacino's daughter, the go- even Michael Corleone's daughter, yeah. um, was supposed to be played by Winona Ryder. And then she pulled out at the last second. So Coppola went, well, obviously it's got to be my daughter. I want to see her kissing Andy Garcia. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's not a huge role. Like, she doesn't have that much to do in the film. She just has to sell this love story between her and Andy Garcia, which falls completely flat. Like, you don't get any sense that Andy Garcia would... Uh, fall for her maybe he just likes uh people who don't have any personality and can't act <laughs> the I, I think siskel of siskel and ebert fame uh, at the time described it well when he said it seemed more like andy garcia was sophia coppola's babysitter than <laughs> love interest and that's, that is what it seems like because she seems really immature and young isn't that what the entire film revolves around too i mean it's critical to some extent but it doesn't really detract as much as you'd expect 
uh, from the from its reputation. Like it doesn't like destabilize the whole film or anything. Especially if you already know going in that it's like a dodgy performance, then it doesn't really matter so much. When you yeah, because it's like okay, yeah, right. Because you don't have to invest as much in the in it. And uh, Robert Duvall's character, which was like a lawyer character um, from the first two, would have had a greater part, um, but obviously he didn't appear, so he was replaced with George Hamilton, and the part was way cut down. I don't know if that would have made a great deal of difference. I mean, obviously there's continuity involved, and Robert Duvall is a would have been a better uh, actor in that kind of scenario than uh, George Ham- Hamilton proves to be, but... Wait, George Hamilton's in it? What? Yeah, George Hamilton. That's that's a funny casting. Yeah, he looks he looks out of place. <laughs> I mean, he's so not supposed odd. to be from the world because like he's a lawyer working for Michael Corleone. He's right. not part so he's of the family. Sort of right. But Robert sure. Duvall was not uh, related by blood. He was like adopted into. No, the he was like a yeah. He was yeah. Irish. Yeah, so I could see why he's re- replacing him. But he still he still stands out. Like he doesn't. He doesn't really fit the milieu. And uh, for a time, it just feels like a really boring edition of The Godfather. Uh, <laughs> wow, you're really selling your uh, revisionist take on it so far. Like, it's very slow, uh, but it kind of has, like, this uh, sort of melancholy about aging and redemption, um, which kind of suits it in the end. It, it kind of comes around, and it, it ends in quite a... a, quite a well-staged uh, sequence where there's like an assassination attempt at the opera and that's all handled really effectively and it's very tense but yeah it's it, it feels it's funny like the watching the, these three films now especially with their length it kind of feels like you're watching a prestige tv show especially if you watch it in a big binge like i did it's interesting it has the feel of a slow-paced prestige tv show um, and I, th- I think it informed it to a, a large degree anyway. But yeah, The Godfather Part 3 is, is fairly solid, I would say. It's, it's definitely, like, initially I watched the first two and I was like, should I bother watching the third one while I have access to it? So I was a little bit um, hesitant, but it was worth watching. I would say if you enjoyed the first two, I'd close it out. And I think it, it, it uh, fits well with the other installments. <laughs> okay, well, uh, I'll talk to you later. All right. <laughs>